Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight trusting by faith that there is no no other name under heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of your Son, Jesus. We come to you in his name. We ask that you would send your Spirit, Lord. We pray that we would learn more of his love, that we might be solidified in confidence that he has loved us perfectly and will love us for all of eternity. And this we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, likely your Bible will just flop open to Romans chapter 5. So I encourage you to open your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 5, which is on page 942 of the Pew Bible. We are continuing our studies here, looking particularly at verses 7 and 8. And I will read for us tonight verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul writes, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When I was in seminary, I met a man named Leon Tombing. He is from India, and in particular from the state of Manipur, India. He and his wife uh, and children were there at Covenant Seminary while we were there, and we graduated during the same year. I had not had much contact with Leon, but in the past six months we have been emailing back and forth, and most recently I've actually gotten to see him on two separate occasions. He's here in the States now with his wife, and they are going around the country once again raising support for their work in India. He is a pastor there, a Presbyterian minister, and he is also the head of an orphanage. In 2004, after being there for three years, he saw the great need to start an orphanage, and that's what he did. And right now, there are 260 little children who are in the orphanage, and he could take another 300 at the drop of a hat if he had the resources to do so. And most of these children have lost parents due to uh, uh, civil war that's taking place, AIDS, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Many of them have been abused themselves. And as we were flipping through pictures of the children in the orphanage together, he pointed out one little girl, and he says, this little girl was abused. And during the first few months there, she would have nothing to do with me. She would see all the other children coming up to me and hugging me, and they would all call him Daddy. He has 260 children calling him Daddy. But this little girl kept her distance. She wanted nothing to do with him because of the abuse that she had taken, most likely at the hands of some other man. Now, she would never say it this way, but in a sense it's almost like she is looking at the other children embracing my friend Leon and looking at his embrace towards them, thinking, this is too good to be true. I can't trust this. I'm not sure that I should give myself to this kind of situation because I might get hurt all over again. You know, if we were to look back at the flow of Romans and see the great depth of our sin, the the darkness of the human heart, the the judgment of God upon sin. And then look in Romans chapter 5 where we begin to see 
the heights of the glory that God has for us in the gospel, at times it almost feels like it's too good to be true. Have you ever felt that way? you ever thought that? Is, is it all really true? And Paul wants to say, yes, it is really true. And we haven't even begun to grasp the full reality of it. Last week, Dr. Ferguson preached on verse 6, where Paul writes, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the logical question after reading that verse is, why would Christ die? For the ungodly. And our sin at times makes us want to wonder that same question. Why would Christ die for me? Why would He have affection for me? I know the, the, the just bare glimpses of my own heart. And I wouldn't die for me. So why would Jesus? See, we live in a fallen world in which... We are suspicious oftentimes of the love of others. It's part of living in a fallen world. After Adam and Eve ate the fruit and were kicked out of the garden, what you find there is alienation from one another, alienation from God, alienation from the creation. Now, by nature, we are suspicious people. We're self-protective people, and we even distrust God and His good intentions towards us. We, We doubt His love, and there are Many reasons for that at times. Sometimes it's our own guilt. We feel unashamed, we feel unclean, and we almost dare not come into His presence. At times it's just the the circumstances of our life that make it feel as though God has removed His love and affection and His good pleasure towards me. Where is God? He must not love me the same. We often read those as indicators of His displeasure. And so we wonder, along with Charles Wesley, when he wrote Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We wonder about God's love. And that's why Paul wants to unfold the amazing love of God in chapter 5 here to assure the church that Jesus really does love His people from now and to eternity. Because it's the love of God in Christ Jesus that's the fuel for the church to continue to press on to fight the good fight. To press on in our struggles against sin and darkness. To press on against the schemes of the evil one. It's the love of Jesus that fuels the church. And therefore, without confidence in God's love, we will simply wither and die. Just like Neil's plant this morning, if you were here at the early service, if we are not watered with the love of God, we will wither and die. And the Holy Spirit knows that the church needs to be assured again and again of the love of God. And so he prompts Paul to write this letter, and in particular to spend a little bit of extra time writing about what it means for God to love His people and actually to prove His case to sinners like you and me who often looked to ourselves for reasons why God would love us. Paul writes here in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love. God shows His love. Now, the word show there is actually a little bit of a a weak way of translating that word. It's more like demonstrate so as to prove 
God wants to prove His love. He's commending His love to us so that we'll see that He is true when He says that He loves us. Back in chapter 3, and verse 25, Paul uses this same word to speak of God showing His righteousness. He's proving that the cross displays the righteousness or the justice of God. And now he wants to say, the cross is also the proof of my love for sinners. That Christ died for sinners. And here's Paul's main point. That the cross is God's proof of his love. Now, how does he prove it? Let me mention three things. One, by granting an undeserved love. Two, by displaying a sacrificial love. And three, by offering a unique love. And so the first thing is that God proves His love by granting us an undeserved love. Paul's already told us in verse 6 that Christ died for the ungodly. And now he's going to use a, a human argument to show that this death is fully undeserved. Fully undeserved. He says in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. In other words, Paul recognizes that there there are some conditions under which somebody might die for someone else. Now the question is, why does Paul mention a righteous person and a good person? Is he simply reiterating his premise in a different way? Well, that's certainly possible. But it might also be that what Paul is doing here is comparing two distinct people. He's saying scarcely will someone die for a righteous person. The righteous person is the the just person, the law keeper, the one who does the right thing. But then he goes on to say perhaps... For a good person, one would dare even to die. And the good person is the person who's kind, the person who's gentle, who's giving, who wants to bless others. We often speak of people this way, don't we? Oh, he's a good man. It means that there's some great quality in him that, that's attractive to us. And we're drawn to that person. And, and for that person, maybe somebody might dare even to die. Notice this language that Paul uses in reference to these people. Scarcely, perhaps, dare even to die. In other words, Paul's saying, don't bank on it. Don't bank on it. There are only a few people who might go so far as to actually die for a worthy person. And oftentimes, by, excuse me, by default, we put ourselves in the position of the worthy person. Children sometimes ask their parents, maybe your children ask you this at some point, half-joking and maybe a little bit serious, who do you love more, me or Johnny or Susie? It's the way they sort of think. They begin to compare one another. Maybe you even remember a time in your own life growing up where you wondered that same question, who does mom and dad love more? Me or my brother or my sister? Maybe even in your house, you knew who was loved more. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was your sibling. Oftentimes, this is the way that we think, and it's the way that we can 
even relate to God. We, we sort of approach Him this way. Who do you love more? We want to prove our worthiness to God. We want to, we want to stand out. We want to shine. But you know this, Paul does not say, I, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and love the most. No. He said, Christ died for us, the sinners. See, at the, the base of the cross, the ground is level. We're all the same. And we're all unworthy. He says we are sinners in verse 8. Literally, even being sinners. Now, here in the ESV, it translates it as while we were still sinners. But Paul is not comparing uh, a matter of timing here, of that time while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He's speaking of a matter of degree, of moral worthiness. And so it's even while we were sinners. The unimaginable happened that Christ died for sinners. And so Paul is looking square into the face of the Roman church, and he's saying, you're not worthy. You're undeserving of this love. There's, there's nothing in you that is righteous or good. And so Paul's hypothetical man in verse 7 is just that. It's hypothetical. Remember where we've already been in, in Romans. Remember back in chapter 1, speaking of the world, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, even for this hypothetical man, the righteous man, even the good man, no one would dare to die. Now, how do I know that? Because no one dared to die for Christ. Is there anyone more righteous? Is there anyone else as good as Christ? Imagine that night which he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is Christ, and he is sweating drops of blood in agony. And as the mob comes for Jesus and begins to handle him, would you have been the one to stand in front of Jesus and say, No, not him. He's righteous, he's good. Take me. Not even Peter, who drew his sword to cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, said, No, take me. Instead, three times, he denied Jesus. If no one would die for Jesus, what makes us think anyone would die for us? See, to die is really the most averse thing to someone now, some people have done this. You can think of special situations where people have died for both noble and ignoble purposes. Maybe in a situation of war, or one soldier has died for another, or for family, or for country. But you see, in that sort of instance, we're dying for our own kind. Jesus didn't die for his own kind. He died for sinners. He's not just another noble man who has died for another good person in this world. Better analogy would be 
at the end of World War II if Hitler had not committed suicide at his war crimes trial, when he would be tried for his crimes against humanity, you were to stand up and say, no, not him. Take me. Take me. Or maybe more close to home, if, if you were to stand up at the trial of the person who mur- murdered your spouse or your mother, your father, your own child, and say, no, take me. You see, it's one thing to forgive a murderer. It's another thing to die in the place of a murderer. And we are all murderers. And we are all undeserving. You know, we read in the Bible of Christ's death, and it often seems so sanitized to us, doesn't it? And by faith, it's it's almost as if the biblical writers want to draw us in to stand before Christ at the cross, to see the agony, to see the horror of it all, to see Christ cry out with the cry of dereliction as His heart was literally broken open for His people. And then we begin to understand just how undeserving we really are of this death. And it's only then that we begin to grasp the reality that we're not worth dying for. And then grace begin, begins to come alive, doesn't it? And C.S. Lewis begins talking in The Four Loves about the love of attraction where something in someone else draws us to them. And most of the time in our lives, we, we spend a tremendous amount of effort to become attractive to other people so that we, they will love us. And he's saying, while we were sinners, even being sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Jesus is meant to benefit sinners. It's meant to benefit sinners. And until we come to grips with that fact that there's no reason in us for Jesus to come and die, that there's no value in us, there's nothing in this world that could compel Him to come here and die for sinners, it's when we grasp that reality that all of a sudden the gospel becomes glorious and filled with great joy because we realize how undeserving we really are. Has Christ's death ever broken your heart? Has Christ's death ever broken your heart? When was the last time that you wept before Jesus because you're so undeserving of His love? So oftentimes our, our prayers can be stiff and filled with a sense of formality. We can, we can, in a sense, hide from God by this religious formalism. And he's saying, come to me as undeserving sinners. And let that reality break your heart so that your, your pride melts. And you're able just to receive from me all that I have to give to you. You see, we're beggars. And that's just the kind of people God loves. And so we know His love by the fact that it's undeserving, but also He proves it to us by displaying a sacrificial love. Death is obviously a central theme here in this passage, and the contrast is by, between man's unwillingness to die, even for a good or righteous person, and God's purposeful death for sinners. 
We're told here, but God shows His love for us uh, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the love of God and the death of Jesus are put together in this passage so that the death of Jesus becomes the manifestation of God's love. It is proof of God's love. Whenever my wife and I counsel couples who are preparing for marriage, one of the questions that I often ask them is, how do you build trust in a marriage? How do you build trust in a marriage? And there are a variety of different answers that you could give, but I think there's one central answer that stands out above them all. And that is sacrifice. Sacrifice builds trust. Think of how your spouse has sacrificed for you and you grow in a sense of understanding their commitment to you. Or a friend or a parent has sacrificed for you and you learn all anew what their commitment level is to you. Think in the Bible of Jonathan and David, the great example of friendship in the Old Testament where David is being pursued by Jonathan's father, the king, King Saul. And Jonathan comes to David's aid and saves him. But think of what Jonathan sacrificed. It wasn't just the risk of losing his father's affection, of his father's love, but he was willing to sacrifice the entire kingdom, wasn't he? He was the heir to the throne. He was due to receive everything. He would have been in command, in charge of the armies of Israel. He would have been the one who, was, who would have parades in his name. And he's willing for David to have it all. And so he sacrifices the kingdom itself that David might be saved. Assurance is rooted in God's love that has been demonstrated by the sacrifice of Christ. And I'll just say this, if your assurance before God is rooted in anything else other than the sacrifice of Jesus, that is a precarious assurance. It will fade away because something will come along that will detract you, some sin, some besetting sin, some circumstance will come along and try to tempt you. God does not love you because your assurance is in your performance. Some people spend a lifetime reacting to a sin that they committed years before and they just can't quite receive the grace that Jesus offers in the gospel. And they spend their whole time wondering, am I really clean? Am I really purged of my sin? Because it just doesn't feel like it's gone. For some of us, we we find circumstances to, to question the God's love for us that Somehow things have not worked out the way that we expected them to. And we wonder, does God really love us? God has proved His love on the cross. If you're a sports fan, no doubt this weekend you saw something of the NFL draft. It is the weekend in which professional football teams select players from the college ranks to come and play on their team for the following year. Now, teams select players based on a number of different criteria. There are certainly the the measurables, those objective criteria, their speed, their height, their weight, their strength, their ability to jump, 
all the things that you can measure, how well they can throw a ball, how well they can catch a ball. But then there's the immeasurables. See, when they go watch the game film, they don't just see somebody who's fast. They find out somebody's heart. How well do they play in the fourth quarter? Do they keep running hard? Do they become a running back that's impossible to tackle in the fourth quarter? How much do they desire to win? As one coach said, speaking about the draft, you can have all the measurable qualities, but the tape doesn't lie. My friends, the tape of history doesn't lie. You can look at all kinds of things in your life and wonder, does God love me? But when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see Him sacrifice for you, it doesn't lie. Christ loves sinners who repent and come to Him. And He has proved His love. God has the same love for you that He had on that day when Christ cried out, It is finished. Now, that's a God you can trust, isn't it? That's a God you can love. Some of you may have family or or friends. Maybe when you go home for Christmas or family reunions, you have that person in your family who is a non-Christian, and they they just wonder about you. And they're confused about your faith. And maybe even they've asked you at some point, how can you love a God that would send people to hell? Well, the answer to that question is quite simple, isn't it? Because that same God was willing to experience the pains of hell for me. And I know that he loves me. God the Father showed no leniency towards Christ. It wasn't as though on the cross he looked on Jesus and said, Now this is my son. I'm going to take it easy on him. No. He gave him the full brunt of his wrath that was meant for his people. Jesus swallowed down to the very dregs all the wrath of God. There is no greater proof that He loves you. Well, God proves His love by showing an undeserving love to sinners and a sacrificial love, but finally, by offering a unique love to His people. And this really, I think, is the main thing that Paul wants to say here, that God's love for us is a unique kind of love. We're told here, God shows His love. Literally, it's the love of Himself. That's not the love for Himself, but the reality that His love originates in Himself. It's not that God possesses love. It's not just that God has the quality of love. God, we're told, is love. He is the unending, infinite source and supply of love. And that's the kind of love that He has loved you with. Sometimes we wonder how people will love us. What will He say about me in public today? What will she be angry at me about today? How will my parents react to me? Will my friends really keep the secret that I told to them? You know, our love and affection can be unpredictable. It can be fickle. Human love grows tired. At times, we're even confused as to how to love people around us. We're not sure exactly what to do. And then there are times we actually have to overcome our preferences, the, the things that we want to do in order to love people. 
Do you know God's love never tires? He's never confused about how to love you. He knows just the right ways to love you. He never wakes up grumpy. His love is boundless. It's infinite. It's a reservoir that will never run dry. You will never exhaust His affection for you. That's the kind of love that God has. You're loved in a way that the world can never be loved. And so no one and no thing in all this world can love you the way that Jesus loves you. Most likely, no one in this room has had someone else die for them other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And statistics probably say that maybe one person in this entire room will have someone die for them in their life. But even if that were the case, no one would give up as much as Jesus gave up for you. The glory of being worshipped in heaven, the eternal affection and fellowship and love of the Father and the Holy Spirit, the humiliation of being put to death on a cross, no one could give up as much as Jesus gave up for you. Because there is no other love like the love of Christ. Now, some, some might agree, you know, you're right. There's no one in this world who can love me as well as I need to be loved. I'll just need to love myself. I, I can't even trust Christ to love me. Last week, Dr. Ferguson talked about how the culture tells us that we often just need to forgive ourselves. Well, it also tells us we just need to learn to love ourselves. Now, I'm not a Whitney Houston fan, so no emails this week heckling me. I'm not a Whitney Houston fan, but one of her songs I do remember from years ago that had a great impact in the culture at the time. It says, it's called The Greatest Love of All. And really it speaks of how her dreams were unfulfilled by other people. There was no one trustworthy in her life. And she writes, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself, it is the greatest love of all. Now, I'll just tell you, there's not enough love in yourself for yourself. And that's the tragedy of her life. If you know anything about her life, her career, her entire life has been destroyed by drug and alcohol abuse. Learning to love yourself will not get you far. It's learning the love of Christ for you. It will be all that you need. His love is without limit. Nothing will love you like Jesus. Your money won't. Your success won't. Your friends won't. Your family won't. Your, not even your spouse can. No one and no thing can love you like the Lord Jesus can. Now, in the last few minutes, I want to speak to women for just a moment, especially to young women, and I'll let you decide if you fit into that category you may wonder, why do I want to speak to young women in particular? It's because I know by experience and by biblical study that one of the, the questions that is deep inside a young woman's heart is simply, am I desirable? Am I loved? Am I cherished? Think of Eve on that day in which God took a rib out of Adam and made her and she became a living being, 
And the first thing she heard is, Wow! At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And since that day, most likely a woman has never heard since joy over who she is. And women often struggle with wondering, am I really desirable? And the temptation is to try to find something or someone that can answer that question. And I'll just tell you now, there's nothing out there. There's nothing out there like Christ. Some women actually do just the opposite. They become self-protective and they close themselves off because they think, surely there's nothing in this world that can love me well. My friends, open your hearts to Christ. For He can love you perfectly. You need to know that Christ is the only one who can love you well. Everything else will fail. Now, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't pursue relationships in this life. But what I am saying is that we all need to drink deeply and richly from the well of Jesus' love. So that we don't try to draw something from people who cannot give us what we desire. Only Jesus can fill you with his love. And so what we need to do is to learn to lean into the love of Christ more and more, to trust him more and more. A number of years ago, ago uh, a young uh, woman came to me, and she was in distress, and I knew her pain for some time now. And she began to open up to me and tell me of something that happened earlier on in her childhood that she wasn't quite sure if it actually happened, and she wouldn't tell me what it was. And after a while of talking, I just asked, have you ever told God? She said, I've never told anyone. I don't know that I can tell him. I said, you think about that. A little while later, she came back to me, and she said, I did it. I said, you did what? She said, I told him. It was scary, but I told him. And it was like this great weight was lifted as she began to entrust herself to Jesus and His love that He would not reject her. And you see, it was there that she began to lean into the love of Jesus more and more and find Him trustworthy because His love is unique. It's not like anyone else's. And He will never reject the sinner who comes to Him in faith. It's almost all too much to take in, isn't it? The love of Christ, too much to take in. And my friend Leon, as we were continuing to talk about the orphanage, flipped through pictures a little bit more and he saw the girl again and he said, I want to tell you, she's a different girl today. And she comes up to me and she sits in my lap and she calls me daddy. And that's the kind of love that Christ has for us that would compel us would draw us in the more we lean into him by faith we would come close to him and experience the love that he has for us that we would trust it more and more after all God has proved it what more could he possibly do and the amazing thing is that we have all of eternity to explore and understand and grasp what Paul talks about when he speaks of the, the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God for sinners like us in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity. 
we get to grasp what it means to be loved by Jesus. Now that's amazing grace. And that's an amazing God. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that there are storehouses and treasures of your love that we have yet to explore. Lord, we have held ourselves back from you. We have not allowed allowed ourselves to even experience fully the love that you have for us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to rest in you, to trust in Jesus, that we might for all of eternity take great delight and joy in the security that we have in your arms. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.